0: Today we're in our series, we're still in our series entitled Upside Down Kingdom. What it means to live as a citizen within God's kingdom, knowing that this world is upside down and God has turned our hearts right side up, and how to handle many different things. We've looked uh, for the past several weeks at a variety of different subjects as we have walked through the scripture, and today we're going to be talking about something that every single one of us in this room deals with, and that is the subject of anxiety, anxiety, And when I think of anxiety, I I, uh, think of the term one day at a time. Everybody knows that term, right? We all know that term one day at a time. And so I decided to Google it, check the Google, and uh, see what it says uh, about one day at a time. And I was astonished with how many many groups and subjects and things are devoted to just that little idiom, one day at a time. 4.5 billion returns, 4 billion returns on that. That's astronomical. Uh, and the first one that came up was the TV show. How many of you remember the TV show, One Day at a Time? Wow, that means you're not young. <laughs> okay, it ran from 1975 to 1984. It starred Bonnie Franklin, Mackenzie Phillips, and Valerie Bertinelli. And then there's obviously the song, One Day at a Time, written by, uh, uh, there were two writers, but I remember one was Chris Christofferson. It was done in the 1970s, and it's been redone by 200 different artists. And it's hit the number one chart I don't know how many different times. And, and I, as I looked and through, you know, I was scrolling through all of the different pages, I not only found the TV show and the songs, but I found so many other things too. I found Alcoholics Anonymous, Al-Anon, Overeaters Anonymous. I found Diverse Recovery Specialists, people who are trying to quit smoking, kids trying to conquer cancer, and a whole bunch of other groups. Because I, I think all of us have something within us that resonates with that concept one day at a time. Because we realize that we can't handle everything coming at us at once. We can't handle all of the stress for our life at one time. We have to handle it one day at a time. And what I don't think most of us realize is that though we are familiar with the term, the term finds its origination or origin within Scripture. As a matter of fact, it finds its origin within our passage for today, where we see that we are to think and process, and uh, deal with stress one day at a time. Now, as Christians, we are prone to anxiety just like everyone else is. And in our world today, we have more anxiety than we've ever had before. With all of the time-saving gadgets that we have, with all of the different uh, technological advances that occur, we are less happy than we've ever been before. Matter of fact, in the Atlantic, uh, publication. They ran an article this past week, and it was entitled "America's Workers: Stressed Out, Overwhelmed, Totally Exhausted." Did you know in the American in the American economy we work more hours than any other country except two, two, South Korea and Japan. And and she notes this. We have we have bought into this. Uh, society where we can work we can have family we can have this achievement we can have this career we can in other words have it all and what she does is shows that it's impossible it really is it's a myth and the way that our world is set up it makes it impossible for us to really have that and thus our anxiety intensifies we medicate ourselves more and more. We go to see more psychologists, more psychiatrists, and we're dealing with so much stress that's all around us at all the time. We need life coaches, and we need help for all of this. And go to a self-help section of Barnes & Noble, and it's massive. We are more stressed and have more anxiety than we've ever had before. But as Christians, are we supposed to have the same anxiety that the world does? We're to have, we're to have something different. But truth be told, is we're just as anxious as our coworkers, as our friends, our, uh, who, who do not believe in Christ. And we, we have this deep, abiding sense in ourselves that something is really wrong. We know it's not right. We don't know quite how to fix it, though. Well, Jesus is calling us back and to show us that though we are in this technologically abundant time, That the problems that plague us are not new. That people in the ancient world dealt with the very same things that we deal with now. And the Bible deals with the entirety of our fallen and frail condition. The Word of God speaks to us to show us how we are to live, how we are not to have anxiety. In other words, how we can truly live and process one day at a time. I would love to go through and see how the culture has developed and has been pretty much at war with our souls, but time will not permit. Instead, we're going to see today how we can live in the midst of this world that stresses us out, and how we can find the peace that God has for us—that's what we're going to look at today. But before we go any further, let's pause and ask for God's blessing on our message time. Father, we do come into Your presence. Lord, we know we have so much anxiety, so much stress in our lives. Our minds run a hundred miles a minute. We have a hard time sleeping at night. We have a hard time getting up in the morning. Uh, We're stressed with our coworkers. We're stressed in our situation, with our finances. We're stressed in our relationships, Lord, not even just in our workplaces, but in our homes. Not only do we deal with the the day-to-day pressures of a boss in the workplace or school and all that entails, uh, but we deal with the stresses and problems at home, whether it means dealing with our spouse, whether it means dealing with our children, We're dealing with our own health. We have many stresses that face us day in and day out. Lord, we come before you right now and ask you to show us, to let the light of your word penetrate through the fog of unbelief that clouds our souls, that we might see who you are and what it means to truly live and operate as citizens of this upside-down kingdom, that we may not be anxious, that we might be peaceful and trust in you. Be in our time today. Direct our thoughts to you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So I would really heavily encourage you to follow along with me as we walk through our text. And if you're in Matthew chapter 6 or you're not that familiar with uh, the Bible, that would be a page 812 in your pew Bible. I want us to start off uh, by looking at our first verse, verse 25. Therefore, now of course you've undoubtedly heard if you've been in church for any period of time, When you see a therefore, what do you ask? What's it there for? Uh, And there's a reason that it's there. It is to call us back to the previous thought. And Jesus had just talked, as we learned last week, he was talking about serving God and money. And he said that it is an impossibility to have two masters, that we will love one and hate the other, no matter which one that is. If we love God, uh, then we can't love money. And if we love money, then we can't love God. The two are mutually exclusive from one another. And, and if we are to truly love God then, and put Him first and not have money to be the end-all, be-all of our lives, that's going to bring us into situations of everyday life that are going to cause us stress. How do I pay my rent? How do I pay my mortgage? How do I get my groceries? What about my medical bills? How do I deal with this unforeseen expenses? How do I pay my loans? What about my debt? All of these financial questions creep in. And Jesus is saying, whoa, finances cause problems. Do they not? <laughs> I mean, we can look at the divorce statistics, and I guarantee that money problems rank in the top two, if not the number one, For couples divorcing, and that comes down to financial problems. Stresses about money, about finances. It's no wonder, then, that Jesus speaks more about finances than he does about heaven and hell combined. Because money has a tendency to reveal our heart. And we have a tendency to get anxious about our finances, do you get anxious about your finances? I mean, if you, you think, well, I don't have any money, so I'm anxious that it's not going to be there. Or you could be the other side and have a lot of money and anxious that you're going to lose it. See, money can go one of two ways. And Jesus is giving us his perspective on money and the anxiety that creeps up around it and into our everyday lives. Now, he starts off with telling us not to be anxious. The Greek word for anxious is merimnate and it's in the present tense and in the imperative mood, meaning that it's a command that he is giving us to not be anxious right now. It's a present tense. The idea is ongoing and he says stop and think about your situation. Now the word anxious means to be concerned for, to be anxious about, to think about something, to reflect, it's consuming our thoughts. Now, when it's coupled with this Greek word, "me," which means do not, the words pair together, and it creates this kind of bigger understanding. Uh, for some reason, I'm an 80s kid, I have a picture of Voltron in my head. So these words unite together to make something bigger. And it's something bigger that overwhelms our minds. And he's saying, stop, pair about it, think about it, think about the situation that you find yourself. Stop. Stop right where you're at. Because we have a tendency, when we have anxiety, it's, it's like it ramps up. And we start thinking about more and more things. And then we start spiraling, and it gets bigger and bigger. And soon, we're no longer talking about the problem, but the other problems around the problem. Have you ever done that? Where instead of the situation that you're facing, you start thinking about all the other situations that you're facing. And it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And Jesus is saying, No, bring it back. Stop and assess your current state of affairs. That's the first thing that I want you to write down. Jesus is calling us to stop and assess. Our current state of affairs, where we're at. The anxiety to stop and think about all of these things that plague us, that cause us to have the peace of God removed from our lives. He wants us to stop and think. And we need to break that down a bit. What are we thinking about? I mean, we need to understand what this anxiety is. I want to draw out and dissect anxiety for a moment. I want to break that down. First of all, anxiety comes from where? It comes from a fear of the future. A fear of the future. That's why Jesus so often says, fear not. He knows that we are prone to fear. Uh, It can be defined, anxiety can be defined as a feeling of worry, nervousness, or unease. Typically about an imminent event or something with an uncertain outcome. And fear, it, the fear that comes from it, that's an unpleasant emotion that comes from believing something or someone is dangerous and likely threatens our comfort or will cause us pain. And what do us? many of us fear? It's the fear of the future. That's why Jesus says, don't be anxious about your life, what you're going to eat, the things that are coming tomorrow. Don't be anxious about those things. It's that fear of the future. Now, it's interesting that the Greek Word I meant, uh, I shared with you before, has at its root a word that means to divide. To divide, to separate. See, anxiety separates the mind. It causes us to look at God, but also to look at our situation, and we start to sink. And what it does is it intensifies our imagination. It intensifies our imagination. It splits us in two, it causes us to magnify the situation in front of us children do this children have minds that are a little bit like wild horses that need to be broken their imagination runs wild all the time and as they their imagination runs wild they have a hard time at, at times separating imagination from reality which is why when a child is in bed at night they go to sleep what do they want they want the light on. Why? Because as soon as that light goes off, every sound, every shadow, everything is magnified, and their imagination runs amok. Now, as adults, we learn to rein this in through time, but we, when we're faced with circumstances beyond our control, the imagination kicks in again. And all of these fears, all of these hypotheticals kick in And we have so many fly in us at one time that we don't know what to do. And we sometimes shut down. We lash out. All of these things happen. But our imagination is amplifying what could possibly occur. We need to rein it in. Now, when that happens, we see that anxiety then swells our stress. It swells our stress. Look at verse 27. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? See, the word used to indicate a, a span. It's adding a cubit or a, a measurement to your size or to your stature or reputation. And he's saying that we have this tendency to want to, to get bigger, to, to do more, and it, and it creates more stress on us. Now, I don't know about you. I don't like stress. I don't like stress. Stress is the silent killer. I mean, stress comes in and is is facing us every moment of every day and when we have this anxiety it's like throwing gas on a fire of stress and it makes it bigger and then what happens to us it saps our strength it saps our strength look at verse 28 consider the lilies of the field how they grow what he's saying there is he's telling us to stop and think about these beautiful flowers that come each spring. The natural, beautiful wildflowers that grow. They don't toil or spin, which is a reference to weavers and clothesmakers who have to sit at a loom and pump it back and forth. I don't know if you've ever seen someone work at a loom. It's hard work. I mean, we don't think about that with our clothes and how they came together. We've, we're, we are... Uh, post-industrial society where we can just walk into Walmart or Target and, and get whatever we need. We don't see it being manufactured and all the labor that goes into it. And even then, we have a lot of machines. But back in Jesus' day, you had to do it by hand. And they're toiling and they're spinning. And he's saying that when you're toiling and spinning like that, and you're, or you're working way past the way that God wanted you to, you're multiplying your anxiety and then it's sapping your strength. You're exhausted. How many of us in this room right now feel tired? Ah, yeah. we feel tired. Why? I mean, we've been doing all of these different things. And, we, and it could be many different reasons. But when we, when we start having this anxiety and we start trying to do too much, then it saps our strength. And it prevents us from communicating and communing with God keeps us from doing what needs to be done spiritually, relationally, occupationally, etc. And he uses, Jesus uses the great King Solomon, who was the wisest man to have ever lived. Wisest man to have ever lived. And he was also one of the wealthiest. I remember interacting with a junior high girl who showed me a passage in Kings where she wanted to know why this passage was in the scripture. And it gave a description of this boat that had just come back from a foreign land during Solomon's time. And it listed all of the things that came back. And one of them was uh, there were apes on board. And she says, why is that there? And I was trying to explain to her, it shows the extent of his kingdom. And how he was able to get things from very far away. Show how wealthy and how prestigious and great stature and power that he had. He was so wealthy and so powerful that in his time, the scripture says that silver was counted as nothing in his time. There was so much gold. There was so much affluence that silver was considered to be nothing. And he, he could afford to have the greatest bling and swag. I mean, this guy could look good. You ever had a really nice, nice coat or jacket, or I mean, really nice piece of clothing—cashmere, leather, silk, Egyptian cotton—all of those nice garments. I mean, for some reason, I'm picturing Elvis in the '70s. You know, he's dressed up, and and Solomon, even though he had the greatest m- clothing that money could buy, he still looked poor next to how God had arranged the lilies of the field. Have you ever stopped and looked at the intricacy of a flower? They're beautiful things that God makes. And he's, he's using this a fortiori argument, which means he goes from the, gr- from the lesser to the greater. And he is, it's, it's a way of showing that if God takes care of the little things, he can surely take care of the bigger things, which is you. He can take care of your needs. Take care of your needs. But we don't want, in essence, God to take care of our needs. We don't want to. See, the reason we don't want God to do it is because we are very fine on our own. Thank you very much. We can do it ourselves. See, we don't, the reason we get anxiety is because it challenges our control it challenges our control. Look back at your text in verse 30. Verse 30. But if God so clothes the grass of the field which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, o you of little faith? Therefore, therefore, do not be anxious saying, what shall we eat? He's saying, what are we going to eat? We can't we can't control it. What are we going to eat? We're totally dependent upon God. What shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles, those outside of the covenant community of God, seek after all these things. And your Heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and these things will be added to you. So we are to seek Him first. That's what God wants us to do. And we're going to get to that in a moment. But it is the second part of verse 4. 33 that i find most interesting in greek the words these things will be added is a divine passive conditional statement it is connected to fulfilling the first part of the sentence putting him first when we put him first he will provide our needs when we don't put him first he will not provide clearly god is showing us that he's in control and we're not we don't like not being in control that's why i don't like flying I don't trust pilots. I think I would be better. (laughs) I mean, think about it. Do you like relinquishing control to other people? No. Especially in our society today. We really don't like relinquishing control. Who are you to decide and make choices for me? Who are you? Uh, We have a potential um, outreach coming up in June. We'll be working with World Relief, Lord willing, And they will be bringing three to four hundred refugees to our grassy area over here. We're going to have Buddhists, Muslims, and Hindus. Now, you want an opportunity to connect with people of a different faith? This is your opportunity. Now, when they come here, we're going to go through some cultural training. Because we're going to find that they have different ideas on how to parent their children than we do. In their culture, and maybe you grew up like this, but the kids are running around like crazy. And one adult can say to that kid, stop doing that. Stop doing that. And in, that, in those cultures, it's perfectly acceptable. The, the whole village kind of takes responsibility for that child. Now today, if someone says that to our kid, what do we say? You can't say that to my child. Why? Because I don't trust you, and and there's reasons why. But we also don't like it because we're not the ones doing it. We're not in control. See, that's the hard part and causes anxiety because it puts the unknown where we're no longer doing it. We're not the ones that are, we, we don't have the solution. We have to put ourselves on God. And that's a hard thing to do because we really don't trust God. We say we trust God. But the reality is, we don't live as if we trust God. It's like my, my son, my four-year-old son Elijah. When he was two or three, I do what a lot of dads do. What do you do with your son? Toss him up in the air, right? And they giggle and weep. Do it again, daddy. Throw him up the air. My wife's like, don't do that again. I'm like, look how high I can get him. Right? Throw him up in the air, and I catch him. But something happens, three to four years old. I throw him up in the air, and he's not happy anymore. What's he do when, I, when he goes up? He starts grabbing. That's when it gets dangerous, because experience now has taught him that he can fall. And no longer does he trust me. He, wants to tr- trust, he trusts himself, and he wants his feet on the ground. Thank you very much. See, we're a little bit like that. When we first come to know Jesus, throw me Jesus! (laughs) Whee! But somewhere along the line, we've been burned. It's not by God, though. It's been by experience, it's been by people misinterpreting God's word, it's by well meaning saints saying stupid stuff. And then we don't trust, and we're trying to get control. See, Jesus is, is trying to show us, you can trust me. You can completely trust me. Now, let's get back to our text. Look at verse 30 with me. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not more clothe you? What's that next statement? Oh, you of little faith, faith. He's saying that when anxiety creeps in, when we're faced with the fear of the future, when our imagination intensifies and starts running amok, our stress level soars, our strength is sapped, the next thing that happens naturally is that it causes our faith to fail. It causes our faith to fail. Oh, you of little faith, you don't trust me. Do you trust in the Lord? Do you trust in God? provide for you now this isn't to be used as an excuse not to work because the scripture clearly says that we are to work this is saying not to be consumed with not having money as our idol because remember we have to go back to the directly preceding section of this passage in the verses that we looked at last week that we can't serve god and money and he's saying if we can't be consumed with it and make money our object, then that means we're to do what? We're to have a different focus. We're to have a, a different ambition. We're to have a different pursuit. And that means following God. See, we have this, we have this tendency to, to trust God, but when circumstances come in, our faith begins to fail. Think about Peter for a moment. Matthew chapter fourteen. The apostles are working trying to swim across the Sea of Galilee. It's the middle of the night. Jesus had stayed back on the shore praying. They've been rowing for three hours, and it shouldn't take three hours to get across the Sea of Galilee. When they see something astonishing, Jesus walking on water. He comes to them. Peter sees him. I I I mean, I don't know what what would you do in that moment? There. Can you everybody see this? I just want to make sure that I'm not smelling too many fish. And what was going through his mind? And he, he calls out to Jesus Jesus, if that's you, tell me to come and walk out to you. Jesus says, Come on. I can't imagine the feeling that he had to grab the edge of that boat to feel the wood underneath your hands, to feel the moisture in the air. It's completely dark. Had to be a moonlit night. You could see Jesus. And to turn his body over, lift his legs up, feel his feet lap in the water. I mean, think about it, just putting your weight off the edge of that boat. The nervousness. And what do I do? (laughs) And he starts, you can picture the steps, you know, it's like Frankenstein. (laughs) Making sure like each step is solid. But then what happens? The wind starts to blow. He starts on the water, water on his face, and he's realizing he's doing something that's not normal, that normal people don't do. And he, and what happens? He starts to doubt, lose faith, it takes his focus off of Jesus, and he starts to sink. And he reaches out to Jesus. He goes, "Lord, save me!" And Jesus lifts him up and says, "Oh, you of little faith." See, it's about perspective. It's when we keep our focus on Him. No matter what the world is doing, we're okay. It's when we take our focus off of Him that things get dizzy. You know, um, ballet dancers, you know when they do their spins? You ever wonder how they do that and not throw up? You know how? It's because when they spin, they're taught to turn and snap their head and keep it on one focal point. And every time they go around, they have to snap that head all the way back. Snap it again. Snap it again. Because if they just let their head go everywhere, they turn and they'll be vomiting on the stage. And that's not good for anybody. Swan Lake takes on a whole new meaning. But the idea is focus. See, when we, when we take our focus off of Jesus, we get dizzy. And the world's circumstances come in and anxiety starts to overwhelm us. God is saying, laser-like focus on me. Laser like. Pay attention to me. Keep your eye on me and I will get you through. Do not be anxious. You know, he takes this pretty seriously. Look at verse 25 for a moment. He says, Do not be anxious about your life. Now, skip over to verse 31. Therefore, do not be anxious. Now, look at verse 34. Do not be anxious three times. In these nine verses, he says, Do not be anxious. He wants us to trust in him. Now, notice what Jesus does in verse 30. He gives him, gives him a, a, a bit of a rebuke. He says, But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow was thrown into the oven. In other words, it's, it's cut down and it's thrown into the oven as fuel. Will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? What do they lack? We saw that. Faith. We can't lack faith. We must believe and trust. And if we're to, we're to follow God, then we must make sure that we are putting an end to anxiety. Putting an end to anxiety. He doesn't want us to be anxious. Now, how do we put uh, an end to anxiety? Well, first of all, it involves trusting in his provision it requires us trusting in his provision if we're going to put away anxiety from our life to abolish it from our vocabulary and the situations which we face then it means trusting in him and in his provision now why don't we trust it's because of a lack of faith yes but i think there's a little bit more that happens we don't believe him now why Perhaps it's because of our own control issues. Perhaps it's because we've listened to someone who told us to trust in Him and then we found ourselves in need. And when that happens, we inevitably feel that we got burned. I've seen this happen a lot in Christians. But the experience is not the result of trusting in God as much as trusting in people who are poorly trained to expound God's Word. For example, I'm going to give a very personal example from my own life. When I was a little boy, my father uh, became a Christian about a year before I was born. And he was following Jesus and got caught up in what is now known as the Word of Faith movement. I think I've shared this in the past. But when he did, he, um, he was told that he didn't need doctors. So he started feeling sick. Started feeling ill. And... They told him, many of the teachers that he interacted with, said that you should not go to the doctor. You don't have to. Going to the doctor is a sign of not having faith. Not having faith. So he didn't go to the doctor. Started feeling sicker and sicker. Started coughing up blood. Finally, circumstances kept him, um, were creeping in on him, and he was like, I'm going to have to go to the doctor. And they said, no, you still don't have faith. You're still trusting in yourself. How are you trusting in yourself? And he goes, Well, I, I don't know. They said, Well, do you have insurance? He said, Yeah. They said, Well, that shows you're not trusting God. So they told him to get rid of his insurance as a sign of faith, which he did. And then he kept getting sicker and sicker. Finally, circumstances kept him from doing anything else but going to the doctor. He went to the doctor, and it was lung cancer. Matter of fact, it was treatable, it looked at least initially. But it had gone, it was too far, had been neglected and advanced, now it had gone to his brain. He was diagnosed in August, and he was gone in February. That experience stuck with me as a little boy. So when I hear Christians say, let go and let God, I cringe because I, I see a misunderstanding of God's word. Misinterpretation, it sounds holy, it sounds good, but it is myopic. Because, see, God not only ordains the end result, but he also ordains means for us. And here's what I mean by this, and I, and I want to uh, draw your attention to something that C.S. Lewis wrote. He was talking about petitionary prayer. Now, you'll see in a moment why I want to highlight this for you. He, he talks about petitionary prayer, and he's showing that God, God listens to our prayers, and he's ordained not only the end results, but he's given us other things in our life to help bring these things about. He says this, Petitionary prayer is, nonetheless, both allowed and commanded to us. Give us our daily bread. God, we are to petition God for our daily needs. And no doubt, it raises a theoretical problem. Lewis was a very, very smart man. He says, Can we believe that God ever really modifies his action in response to the suggestions of men? Does God, in essence, really listen to us that he'll change things? For, for infinite wisdom does not need telling what is best. God is so wise, he doesn't, need you to tell you, he doesn't need you to tell him what's going on. He knows. He knows. And infinite goodness needs no urging to do it, but neither does God need any of those things that are done by finite agents, whether living or inanimate. In other words, God doesn't need us. There's nothing that us as finite beings can really contribute to the infinite, all-knowing, all-powerful God. But yet, God calls us to pray. Lewis notices this. He goes on. He, and he, this is where I want you to pay attention. He could, if he chose, repair our bodies miraculously without food. In other words, we could, God could just heal us and, and sustain us without food. Yet, he wants us to eat. He wants us to harvest. Or he could give us food without the aid of farmers, bakers, and butchers. Or he could convert the heathen without missionaries. Instead, he allows soils and weather and animals and the muscles, minds, and wills of men to cooperate in the execution of his will. So in other words, he includes doctors, he includes work, he includes all of these things that we are to do that he has given to us. So when people say that they can hide... Behind, I'm not saying this is always the instance, of let go and let God. I mean, there are times that we do let go and completely trust. But what we're doing is we're trusting in Him, and that should not be used as an excuse to be lazy. He's saying that God has executed the, the means and the results. in one of the ways that he, he has given us these things to be used to help fulfill His will. Doctors. Farmers, millers, butchers, missionaries—to say that you don't need this stuff—that could be what God's way of provision for you. It was a wrong argument to say that you should not go to the doctor. Is stupid in that instance because it was God's—it was the means that was already there—that really wasn't faith, but foolishness. It sounds like faith, but it's really not. Because if you were to take it to his conclusion that we don't need anything like that, we don't need to go get food, we don't need to work, we don't need to do any of these things, and and that's not what we're supposed to do. He allows soils and weather and animals and the muscles, minds, and the will of men to cooperate. He's given us, as Blaise Pascal said, instituted prayer in order to lend his creatures the dignity of causality. In essence, he's given us the ability to share in working out his will. That's pretty cool. He listens to prayer. He goes on. But not only prayer, this transfers to every part of our life. Whenever we act at all, he lends us that dignity. It is, really, it is not really stranger nor less strange that my prayer should affect the course of events than that my other actions should do so. They have not advised or changed God's mind. That is, his overall purpose. But that purpose will be realized in different ways according to the actions, including the prayers of his creatures. In other words, all of these things come together to work out and show God's will. That's what he is saying there. He goes on. For he seems to do nothing of himself which he can possibly delegate to his creatures. He commands us to do slowly and blunderingly what he could do perfectly and in the twinkling of an eye. He allows us to neglect what He would have us do or to fail. Perhaps we do not fully realize the problem, so to call it, of enabling finite free wills to coexist with the omnipotence. It seems to involve, involve at every moment almost a sort of abdication. So he's saying it is that God could do all of this stuff for us, but instead He gives us the opportunity and dignity to cooperate with making His will known in the world. And that's through a lot of different things. He could do it instantaneously, but he chooses to use us, and he allows us as finite human beings to cooperate with the infinite God to do these things. He goes on. We are not mere recipients or spectators. We don't just have a front row seat to see what God's doing. We are either privileged to share in the game or compelled to collaborate in the work, to wield our little tridents. He's quoting a poem from the 17th century, I believe from Milton, or maybe earlier than that, not 17th century, excuse me, but much, much earlier, to wield our little tridents. In other words, we're little rulers. We are co-rulers with him, co-rulers with Christ, as the scripture says. Is this amazing process simply creation going on before our eyes? This is how, it's not a light matter, God makes something indeed, makes gods out of nothing. In other words, We are made in his image, and he is conforming the image of God in us and making us more like Jesus to wield that authority that has been given to us through him and as recipients and bearers of the divine image which we have within us. Did you get all that? (laughs) You're not gonna get that at the shelf at Walmart. Okay. It's deep water. Deep water but he goes on. See Lewis's point is that we are to work and pray, work and have faith. They're not mutually exclusive, but a ca- compatible and necessary. We must understand that the means which have been given are one of the ways that we show that we are his image bearers. Or as the great British pastor and scholar John Stott has noted, similarly, God has not does not cast all his children in the role of the prophet Elijah. Remember Elijah when the 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 times have become so bad and the people have become so corrupt that he withdraws from society and he is sustained by the ravens. God sends them to him, helps provide food for him supernaturally. But he goes, God does not cast all his children in that place in the role of the prophet Elijah and supply our food miraculously through angels or ravens, but rather through the normal means of farmers, millers, market gardeners, fishermen, butchers, he's a Brit, grocers, and the rest. Jesus urges upon us the necessity of a simple trust in our Heavenly Father, but his understanding of faith was neither neither naive, ignorant of second causes, meaning like a miller, like a farmer, it's a second cause, he doesn't just instantaneously do it, nor archaic, incompatible with modern science. Basically, the point that he is trying to make is that we are to have a simple trust in our Father, but we are to keep working and doing, and then at the end of the day, not to be consumed with it, but to trust in Him. Make sense? If I could simplify it a little bit for us. We have a responsibility, and we trust in God as we do it. God loves us after all, in ways that we cannot begin to fathom. God wants us to be concerned, but He doesn't want us to be uh, consumed concerned but not consumed. Look at verse 26. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. They don't store it up, they're not working for it. But God takes care of them. Are you of not more value than they? See, so he's talking about the birds of the air, the birds of the air, excuse me, and he notes that there is a, a value to them. And now the word in Greek is diphorete, it means to differ, to be different, to be more worth more than, to be superior to. God is saying that we, as his image bearers, are more valuable than animals. This is where PETA messes it up. Okay? PETA makes animals at the same level as us. We're not. Yes, we're to treat animals fairly. The Scripture says that in the book of Proverbs, that a man is to treat his ox with dignity, in essence, to treat your animals with dignity, but they are not image bearers like we are. They are not recipients of His salvation. But we are. We are more valuable, and we can see this shown at the cross. And if we're to really trust in His provision and abolish anxiety, we have to realize the extent to which God brought us to Himself and remember the price that was paid for us. Remember the price. That was paid. I want us to you to turn with me, please, to First Peter chapter one, verse eighteen through nineteen. If you have a pew Bible, that's page one zero one four. I got the verse up there on the passage. If I mean on the screen, if you didn't uh, hear me say it, but First Peter chapter one, verse eighteen through nineteen, um, it says this: Peter is writing. I'll give you a moment. Peter writes, knowing that you were ransomed, you were purchased, you were bought from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, meaning that there was a price paid for you, that God paid a price for you. He didn't pay money, wasn't Bitcoin, wasn't gold, wasn't silver, wasn't rubies or precious jewels, but with the what? The precious blood of, of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Now turn with me to 1 Corinthians 6:18 through20. First Corinthians 6:18 through20, and that's on page 955. Verses on the screen. See, we have to understand that the price he paid for us cost him his son. He paid for us with his son's life. We then should trust in him because we know that he has our best intent at heart. We have to understand that like one guy's t-shirt I saw when I was working in uh, Connecticut, um, I was doing a conference and this guy had a t-shirt it said this, I'm kind of a big deal. And then underneath it it said because Jesus died for me. It's true. Very true. We're valuable. Look at this passage 1 Corinthians 6:18. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. The price tag to set you free from your sin and, and death and the wrath of God was Jesus So glorify God in your body. Now scan down to chapter 7. Or flip the page. I'm not sure what it is for your Bible. And look at 1 Corinthians 7, 21 through 23. Were you a bondservant when called? In other words, were you in slavery? Indentured servitude? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. In other words, don't don't be consumed with your freedom, but if you can get it, then you should. For he who is... Who was called in the Lord is a bondservant or slave, is a freeman in the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when called is a bondservant now of Christ. Christ has purchased you, he owns you. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So what, what we see there is we see how valuable that we really are. When Jesus says, Don't you know that you are more valuable than the birds of the air that God takes care of? I I love you so much. That I gave my son for you. I gave the very best that heaven had to offer to pay for you. You can take all of the riches in the world, all of the money that there is, take care of all the millionaires and billionaires, take care of all of them together, pile everybody's money, and it's like one grand, one grain of sand to what God has paid for us in comparison. It's worthless. He gave us the very best that heaven had to offer for you. Remember the price that he paid for you. This is why we can't stay in sin and have the Savior. You can't live in a state of sin and have the Savior. Because sin is serious. So serious that it costs the Son His life. And God is so glorious by paying the price for that serious sin to free us from it, that we can't stay in sin any longer. You are subjecting Christ to be crucified all over again when you stay in sin. When we fail to trust God and and believe in His Word, then we are subjecting Christ. Him And we're causing the Gentiles, those outside the covenant community of, of God, to blaspheme God because of your disobedience. Because if you claim to be a believer in Christ, then your life needs to reflect it. And that's for all of us, me included. And we're going to fail. We are going to fail. We're going to struggle. We're going to sin. I am my, you know, I'm included. But the idea is, is not staying in the state of sin. There's a big deal with struggling with it and living in a state of it. Big difference. He knows that we're going to sin, but then we need to repent and have godly repentance. And the more that we grow with Jesus, the more that we're to come to look more like Jesus. And how do we become more like Jesus? We read his word. I like what Charles Hedden Spurgeon said. He said, A person. Whose Bible is falling apart is reflective of a life that's not. Meaning that they're in the Word of God so much that it becomes part of who they are. Now, what do we do when we find ourselves overwhelmed by the waves of anxiety? Because they're bound to come. What do we do? We have to stop, get our bearings. Remember, he said, assess your state of affairs. It's a command to stop and think and make sure that we are preaching perspective to our souls. Preaching perspective to our souls. Now look at verse 31. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? We're consumed with the questions. This is the bad part of it. What shall we drink? What shall we wear? See, this is what we do. We question. All these questions pop up in our minds without answers. Now, what God wants us to do, though, When that situation happens, we have to be able to answer those questions and preach to our soul's perspective. Now, where do I get that? I get that from the book of Psalms. I want you to turn with me to to Psalm 42, page 469. Psalm 42, and this is 5 through 6. It's found, actually, this uh, passage I'm getting ready to read is quoted twice in this psalm alone, and then again in Psalm 43. And this is what happens when the waves of anxiety overwhelm the psalmist. He says this. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God! For I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. Here's what you do. When you're faced with anxiety, I want you to say this. Soul, what's the problem? Soul, you ever done that? You ever talk to yourself? I do that. When I was a kid, my mom, I'd wake up in the morning and my mom would be making breakfast and she'd be talking to the dog. And then the dog died. And she kept talking. And I'd come in and I'd go, Mom, who are you talking to? The dog. He's been dead for five years, Mom. She was really talking to herself. See, we're to to not talk to ourselves, but preach to ourselves. Preach the promises of God to our souls. Why, soul, are you so downcast? Hope in God. Does he not have your back? Does he have not given his precious promises within his word? Do you think God is going to forsake you? This is why we, we preach perspective to ourselves, to rein ourselves in, because we know it, it's what we do when anxiety heats up, we're like a boiling pot. What happens if you let the pot boil? What happens? It starts spilling over, right? See, when we preach perspective, that's taking the knob and turning it down. Enables that to come back in so it doesn't boil over that pot. Preach perspective to our souls. That's why he says, oh, soul. When he, I mean, that's what Jesus is saying here. Don't ask yourself these questions about, you know, what am I going to drink? What am I going to do? God knows. Preach to yourself. Does not have God have your best intent? Why are you downcast, oh, my soul? Hope in God. Put your faith in Him. Reign it in. Preach perspective to your soul. And after, preach, pre, after excuse me, after preaching perspective... Then make sure you are focusing on the present. Focusing on the present. Look at verse 34. Therefore, remember, therefore. What's it there for? Do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. In other words, focus on the moment. Don't get overwhelmed with what comes. Don't worry about tomorrow. Why? Because it's got its own issues. The word actually in Greek for the day of its own troubles is evil, kakia, in Greek. It's got its own troubles, its own pain, its own evil that you're going to have to deal with. You'll get that to get it then. Don't be overwhelmed by everything. There's this, uh, this, this is why we have a tendency to, to let everything magnify. I'm, I'm a Bulls fan, okay? I, I like the Chicago Bulls, and I like the coach, uh, Tom, Tom Thibodeau. And one of the things that he has as a philosophy is this, um, one game at a time one game at a time. Now, this past season, the star player, Dick Rose, got another injury. He was out. Everybody thought the season was over, and he kept preaching to the team, one game at a time, one game at a time, and they've been the surprise. They've done really well. They, they, he got, went down with an injury. They traded one of their best players, and they're still doing well, despite what they did on Friday night, okay? They're still doing well, and because they have that philosophy, they understand we take it one game at a time, and they mean that, One game at a time. One day at a time. Deal with what I have to deal with right before me. It's a principle that can apply to many different facets of life. Charles M. Schwab, not the investment broker, but the steel magnet, encountered this man who promised to help reduce his anxiety and help him get stuff done. And he said, uh, how much, he goes, uh, how much do you charge for this? He goes, well, I'll just tell you the philosophy and then I want you to send me a check with how valuable you think this is. He goes, okay, what do I do? And he says, well, what you do is you pull out a piece of paper. I want you to write down the five things that you have to do. You have to get done. He writes them down. He goes, now I want you to order them by priority. And he goes, okay. He goes, now here's what I want you to do. I want you to not go on to the second item on the list until you get the first item done. And then when you get that done, go on to the next one. And if you don't get it done that day, that's fine. You just keep coming back to that one. And, and move it down the list. Well, a few weeks later, he gets a check in the mail, this is in the 1930s, for $25,000. He said, it revolutionized my company. This one little small thing. And what he was doing, was breaking it down and saying, deal with one thing at a time, one day at a time, one problem at a time. Don't let it overwhelm you and creep in. Focus on the present moment, not on the future, with what everything's going to happen. It doesn't mean we don't plan, but it means focusing on the stuff that we have right in front of us in the moment. Focus on the present. God delights in us trusting in Him. And He has reminded us again and again that He will be there for us. And in, in addition to us preaching perspective to our souls, we must make sure that we are clinging to His promises. Clinging to His promises. Look at verse 30 and the following. But if so, God closed the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? I'm going to clothe you. I'm going to take care of it. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you that I'm going to take care of it, that I'm laying it out. I am promising and putting my name on the line that if you seek me, I will do it. It's a divine passive. It will be added. It will be taken care of. We have to cling to the promises of God, no matter what circumstances assail us. Remember, How many of us uh, in the room remember the movie Twister? Remember that movie? Twister with Bill Paxton and Helen Hunt. Uh, my favorite part, and I, I think I've shared this before, is when uh, the character played by Bill Paxton and the Helen Hunter are together and the tornado comes right at them, and they can't get away from it. And they, they end up going into this small little shed and they're going to be destroyed in a moment. That tornado's going to hit him. It's going to take him, destroy him. And he stops and he sees these pipes and he goes, these pipes go down about 30 feet. He takes off his belt and he ties himself to the pipe and he ties her to him. And then as soon as they do that, the the tornado hits, the building is stripped away, and they're hanging, literally being hanging and sucked in, and they're clinging to that that pipe because it goes down so deep. You know, that's how we are to be with the promises of Almighty God. We're to tie ourselves to the promises of God that when the circumstances assail us, that anxiety creeps in, that worry is all around us, that no matter what happens, we're holding on to God. Because his promises go down really deep, and no one can rip them out, no matter how hard they try. We must cling to these very precious promises of God. Now, let's go back to our text. Look at verse 32. For the Gentiles, this is ethne in Greek. It's a way of referring to those outside of the covenant community of God. Um, Matthew is using a term, that Jews would often use to employ those outside of the Jewish community, but he's using it here to refer to those, uh, not just who are ethnically Gentile, but those who are outside of the covenant community, meaning that they have not placed their faith in Christ. These are the rebellious, Those are those who refuse to submit to God. Uh, he says, For the Gentiles, these are the people outside of the covenant community. They are seeking after. They are pursuing these things of the world. They're consumed by them and making money and getting all of these things. Don't worry about it. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them. He's saying that their ambition is wrong. Remember, this thought is connected to money. So he's looking back and, and seeing that they are consumed with only what money can give. Then he goes on in verse 33. But seek First, the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Now, the word here for seek is a present imperative active, meaning that uh, it's calling us to do it right now. It's a constant attitude, and it's it's a command to do it. Now, when it's followed by a future tense, it forms a conditional clause. God commands us to seek his kingdom first and above all things, and when we do, he'll take care of our everyday necessities. He wants us to seek Him first. Now, verses 32 and 33 combine to address our ambition. What are we seeking after? Unbelievers are out to get theirs. All that money can buy. Status, security, more stuff. Not so with the believer in Christ. We're to have a different ambition. And that's what this is about. It's choosing to redirect our ambition. Redirecting our ambition. Ambition is not a bad thing, provided it has the right object in view. But what does that mean? If we're going to take away anxiety, which as we have seen seen is really rooted in unbelief and an improper focus, then we need to redirect our focus away from being consumed with all of the stuff that money can buy and put it on something else. But what would that be? We're to seek first the kingdom of God. God. It's present, present imperative. One should take. It means that one should make the kingdom of God the center of one's existence, and thus experience the rule of God fully in one's heart. Hence, the present tense: keep seeking. Now, how do we pursue this? Pursue this kingdom by seeking His righteousness, and that is a righteous righteousness of a qualitatively new kind. The gift of the kingdom and the demand of this new righteousness are inseparable. The emphatic proton, first and above all, means to make the kingdom and righteousness one's clear priority in life. So this ambition involves us prioritizing His kingdom. Prioritizing His kingdom. It also means pursuing His righteousness. Now, the problem that many of us have is that we don't prioritize God's kingdom. We do everything else, but not God. There's a, there's a story, a fascinating story, uh, about a painting that is in the in, um, art gallery in Berlin. It's by Adolf Menzel, and it's about Frederick the Great, but it's unfinished. See, it was supposed to show Frederick the Great talking with some of his generals. He painted the background, the generals, and left the king until last. He put the outline of Frederick in charcoal, but died before he could complete the work. See, it's a picture that many of us have painted. We, like Menzel, have taken care of everything else in life except the main thing, and that's Jesus. Jesus has to play and be center, the focal point. We need to give him proper place. We need to pursue his righteousness, pursue him. I like what Tom Landry, the former football coach of the Dallas Cowboys, said, this really... Um, he said, this really, the most important factor in my life is my faith in Jesus Christ. He says, when you accept Christ, he becomes first in your life. Is this priority, it's this priority that gives me peace. How much is God's kingdom a priority in your life? How much are you pursuing his righteousness? Don't you realize that this world is passing away? If God's kingdom that is not going to last is going to pass, I mean, if God's kingdom... Is going to last forever. And this world is passing away. It's going to be gone, forgotten. Then what are we working for? What are we living for? Don't think that you're going to slide into heaven. As if we can't give him our life, but we can just have him as an insurance policy. We have to have everything about who he is. And our life must be known by pursuing his righteousness. Pursuing his righteousness. Now, I want, to ask, I want us to do an exercise for a moment. Um, or actually, hear a story and then do a mental exercise. Bill Hybels, the pastor of Willow Creek Community Church, tells a story about when he was working with his staff. And he said they did this exercise where they had one of the staff go out of the room, and then they wrote his obituary. A little depressing exercise for staff morale. But yet, they wrote his obituary, and they came back in. They called it his tombstone. When they came back in, they wrote and shared it with him. And instead of being morbid, as you might think, it was actually a means of inspiration because they were able to see what others saw in them. And it was affirming them. And they were known by their pursuit of God. It was a very wholesome exercise for them. And later... Heibels picks up the, the little tombstones that they wrote for each of the staff, because they did it for each staff member, and they get ready to throw it away, and the staff are mortified. They wanted them framed. And they framed them and put them up in the offices, because it was a reminder to them of what they're going to be known for. It's a good exercise to do, because it prioritizes our life. Now I want you to think this. I want, you to, I want you to think about writing your own obituary. What would others remember you by? So and so was mother, father, married so and so, had so many children, survived by so and so. They worked faithfully at so many years, or different jobs, did a lot of golfing, knitting, loved race cars, sports, bulls, the cubs, no one knows why, the White Sox. The years, what were you gonna be known by? What are you gonna be known by? Is he going to be known by a pursuit of God, a pursuit of righteousness? God demands to be the center of our existence, and I hope our life is representative of that fact. I see so many folks on Facebook put their friends or family's obits up and then say something to the effect of, they have joined so-and-so in heaven. I wish it were that easy. I wish we could just write and get it in a newspaper, and that meant that they were in heaven, but it's not. Most of the time, it's their only way of dealing with it because they're afraid to deal... Uh, With their own mortality and their own walk with God. They'd rather be content in their ignorance and go to hell rather than deal with the reality of their sin and change. We are to cast our anxieties on Him. We're to look to Him because He cares for us. God takes care of the birds and the flowers, even though they're just there for a while and then destroyed. I know that many of us still lack trust, we still don't believe. We fear that if we trust him, we may suffer. Let me say this. You're going to suffer. Let me clear that up right away. Trusting in him does not exempt us from suffering. In fact, we need to understand that um, he is orchestrating our circumstances in such a way as to bring him glory, and that may mean suffering and suffering loss for a period of time. That means suffering. God may have us suffering for his glory. That's the next point, suffering for his glory. I want to share this quote with you from John Stott. He says, "...thus, although God clothes the grass of the field, it is still cut down and burnt. God protects even sparrows, which are so common and of such minimal value that two are sold for a farthing or five or two farthings." talking about pennies. "...one being thrown in for luck. Not one of them will fall to the ground without your father's will," Jesus said, "...but sparrows do fall to the ground and get killed." And his promise was not that they would not fall, but that this would not happen with God, without God's knowledge and consent. People fall too, and airplanes. Christ's words cannot be taken as a promise that the law of gravity will be suspended on our behalf, but again that God knows about accidents and allows them. Further, it is significant that at the end of this paragraph, the reason Jesus gives us why we are not to be anxious about tomorrow is let the day's own trouble be sufficient for the For the day, so there will be trouble, kakia, evil, we're going to face it. The Christian's freedom from anxiety is not due to some guaranteed freedom from trouble, but to the folly of worry, meaning that you're going to face trouble, but don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. You can't add a statute to your life. It's not going to change anything, but to trust in God through the midst of that. But to the folly of worry, to which we shall come later, and especially to the confidence that God is our Father, that even permitted suffering is within the orbit of His care, that in everything God works for good with those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. What does that, what does that mean for us? It means that God may mean and have us to be suffering for His glory. Suffering for His glory. I don't want to give you a, a tarnished bill of goods. God wants us to be suffering for His glory. Let's, let's finish up here in our last point. God will take care of us, and that means resting in His sovereignty. Resting in His sovereignty. I like how 34 bookends the whole thing. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Don't worry about tomorrow. Believer, rest in today. Each day has evil we have to face, but God will get us through it. It's no use to have anxiety about it, but it means trusting in Him. And it's for the believer means for those who have trusted in Christ, who have placed their faith in Him, who have repented of their sins, received Him as Savior. Have you received Him? It's one of the reasons that you have anxieties, because you are under the condemnation of God, and you don't have peace with God. The Scripture is very clear. There is no peace for the wicked. But when we come to Him, we have peace with God, and that enables us to have a peace that transcends understanding in our everyday life, as well as having peace with others for His glory and our joy but it means receiving Him. It means believing in Him and placing our trust in Him. And for the believer, it means us looking at Him day in and day out, focused on Him, and we will have peace and rid anxiety from our lives. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for this day. I thank You for all that You have done for us in and through Christ. Lord, I pray that You bring us close to Yourself. Lord, help us to trust in You for our daily needs. Help us to look to You. but Help us to truly believe and take you at your word, knowing that you have our best intent at heart. Help us to abolish anxiety from our everyday lives and trust in you and your sovereignty, because we know that you love us and you gave your son for us. We might experience peace and joy in the new life that we have in you. We thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name.